and, and it's a privilege to be with you. Uh, thanks for the introduction. I'm being described as Donald from the Isle of Skye. I do belong to the Isle of Skye, but I've been I flitted to the mainland of Scotland last month, and I'm now living in the town of Kinghorn. I'll come to that later. But what's more important for this meeting is not where I live, not even my name, but the fact that I am an alcoholic and I'm careful to use the present tense. It's not that I used to be an alcoholic. I am now an alcoholic, as much of an alcoholic as when I came to AA. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that as I spin out my yarn. What I want to speak about is what we cannot do for ourselves. And that might seem odd to some. I'm talking about recovery in AA, and yet I'm saying I can't do it myself. We cannot do it ourselves. But what my experience has been is that God could and would if he were sought. So what I want to emphasize also is that when I share at a meeting, it's certainly not with a view to anybody trying to copy me. I, I, I would shudder if that was ever looked upon as a possibility. I can only share my own story and everybody's case history is different. It must be, inevitably it will be. The, the drinking is different and the recovery is different. There are different emphases. But I can't share anybody's, anybody else's recovery or anybody else's drinking. It's only my own drinking. So this is my story. I'll give a wee bit of the background. I, I, I belong to the islands of Scotland, Western Isles of Scotland. I, I belong to the Isle of Skye. Uh, much of my drinking, however, took place further west in, in the Outer Isles, in the Isle of Harris, where I was living, a Gaelic-speaking area. Gaelic's my first language. And uh, it, this was in the 1970s. I, I've, I've been in AA, I've been sober since, since the 1970s, but my drinking took place in the early 1970s. And it was, there was no, breaking in period, right from the word go, there was a problem. I'm aware of that now. Uh, it was quite a heavy drinking community. These were the days, the enlightened days in the 1970s when women weren't allowed into the bars. If, if a woman put her nose in the door, she was showing out. It sounds like something out of the history books, but that's just the way it was. And uh, the glasses of whiskey were lined up on the counter ready for people, thirsty customers. And uh, right from the word go, I, I took to it like a doctor water. It helps being called Donald, of course, being taken to it like a doctor water. But I, I got into a mess very quickly. And I knew why. Because I was taking too much. Uh, so tomorrow I'm not going to have so much whiskey. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be more careful and I'll have longer periods between my, my drinks. And I just couldn't do it. 
time after time, I ended up in a mess. I found it quite easy to stop. In fact, I stopped drinking for good 173 times. I had no difficulty stopping drinking. And each time I stopped, it was never again, never going to do that again. Sometimes that lasted half an hour. Sometimes it lasted a week or two. But whenever I wanted to drink, I drank. Oh, I wasn't that bad. And I'll do it differently this time. And anyway, it's the company I'm keeping. That's what's to be. I'll, I'll, I'll drink with somebody else. And the shape of the whiskey glass seemed to have a big significance as well. If it was a curved tumbler, I was at less risk. It was the straight-sided glasses that did the damage. And I would even warn tourists about drinking whiskey out of straight-sided glasses. I was nuts. I realise that now. Oh, and also, why am I in such a mess today? It's because somebody had slipped me a whiskey from a stained glass bottle. The stained glass bottles of whiskey were, were dangerous. As long as I st stuck to the clear glass bottles and the curved tumblers, everything was fine. What a load of bilge. Just excuses, trying to rationalise why I was getting into such a fearful mess. And I would pray. can't remember a time in my life when I didn't realise that God existed. But my prayers were odd. Realize now, they were bargaining prayers. For years, they were bargaining prayers. Oh, Lord, please don't let me get into a mess tomorrow night, and I promise I won't drink quite so much. You know, something along these lines, um, justifying my behavior. But I couldn't be an alcoholic. I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic, and I'd invented criteria that would qualify me to be an alcoholic and as long as I managed to avoid these particular criteria which I'd managed to invent then I was just a heavy drinker and I would have to try harder and straighten my life out and the three criteria I seem to recall there may have been more but the three main ones were to be an alcoholic I would have to have a drink first thing in the morning. And to be an alcoholic, I would have to miss days off work because of my drinking. Now and again, I would have to miss days off work. And to be an alcoholic, I would occasionally have to sleep rough without a roof over my head. And as long as I avoided those three things, I was just a heavy drinker. See the, the sad way the mind works. Well, this business about not needing a drink first thing in the morning, in a sense that was true, but only because I'd never any left. I would buy a couple of half bottles, especially for the morning. But when the morning came, they were empty. I was gagging for a drink. And when I was walking to my work, when I had a job, when I was walking to the hotel, I would be looking at the sides of the road to see if there were any discarded half bottles. And I would drain the dregs. I was gagging for a drink. Um, 
but I couldn't be an alcoholic because I didn't have any. How it can be rationalized. And then this business about missing days off work because of my drinking. Well, in a sense, that was true as well. But that was because latterly I didn't have a job. And you can't miss days off work if you don't have a job. See, smart. And it all worked out. Just a heavy drinker. And then this one, last one that I'd invented about having to wake up without a roof over my head. Well, that was true. That never happened yet. But I would wake up in very odd places. Um, telephone kiosks or post office vans. Um, There's one day I woke up in a hen house. Now, I have to explain if the, I know there are Americans present. A hen house, I mean a real hen house. I know there's a different meaning for that word in the USA. But th this was the feathered variety. And when the lady came out to feed her hens in the morning, here was this drunken idiot. But because I had a roof over my head, I couldn't be an alcoholic. And I believed this. There was another occasion. I'll, I'll, I'll get on to my recovery eventually, but there was another occasion. There was an old hearse parked beside the dump, and I used to sleep in that occasionally. And I remember one Sabbath morning, Kirsty Cathy and Kalyak McPhee, two old ladies on their way to church, as they walked past the hearse, had peered out the window at them. Now, I could have caused heart attacks, but because I had a roof over my head, I couldn't be an alcoholic, even though it was a hearse. Absolutely nuts. Anyway, these prayers, bargaining prayers, time after time, they weren't genuine prayers. But eventually I thought, it's where I'm living. That's the problem. Of course it is. It's the company I'm keeping and the island I'm on. I'll go where I'm not known. And I headed east to the mainland of Scotland. I ended up in uh, St Andrews, the home of golf. And what happened was my drinking got worse. It escalated. I became much more of a loner. I was in a desperate state. And I was getting arrested. Breach of the peace. Um, had motorbikes, drunk driving. In police assault, uh, in a terrible state. But I had my last drink at long last. And I was 23 when I had my last drink. So it's not that long ago. And I'd been arrested again for biting a policeman's thumb this time. I'd done that before. I think there were different policemen but it doesn't matter. And I'd ended up in the cells in Dundee. And when they let me out, eventually, I made my way to a cemetery in St. Andrews, a cathedral cemetery. I could probably still go to the, to the stone seat in the old cloisters where I sat and I was praying. And this was a different type of praying. It wasn't a bargaining prayer. It was a prayer of absolute and utter desperation.
by this stage, I was hoping I was just an alcoholic. No, that sounds a bit weird, but I am a bit weird. I was hoping I was just an alcoholic. And basically what I was doing, I was telling my higher power, I, I believe, I, I think it's important that I know who my higher power is. I can't have a relationship with anybody unless I know who they are. So I need to know who my higher power is. And basically I was telling him what he knew already, told him all about me, told him exactly what I'd been doing, the trouble I'd got into. And it wasn't a bargaining prayer this time. It wasn't you do this and I'll do that. No, it was please help me. I can't do this. Oh yes, I can stop, but I can't stay stopped myself. I can't. I need help. Please help me. And from that day until today, I haven't yet wanted to lift another drink. But I better speak a bit about my recovery as well. He gave me the thought of AA. I hadn't really considered AA up until then. But here I was hoping I was just an alcoholic and I phoned AA for help. The man who, the man who answered the phone, he'd, he'd been sober since 1960, a big uh, 25-stone bearded Yorkshireman. And uh, he couldn't have told you the 12 steps from his big toe, but he practiced them, which is more important. And he took me to my first AA meeting. It was in a psychiatric hospital. Ironically, it was in the same hospital in years later where I ended up working as a psychiatric nurse. And uh, that was my first meeting, and it was full of patients in the hospital. I felt I was far worse than anybody else there. The rest of them didn't look like alcoholics. I, I felt I'm a real alcoholic. Wait till you find out what I'm really like. And I kept going to meetings in St. Andrews. Um, there was another member there who'd been one of the first members in Scotland. He, 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 he knew Bill W. And uh, would tell me stories about him. And I was nurtured in AE. I was showing love. And sometimes it was tough love. Um, and very, very gradually. I began to recover. And I said already that since I came to AA, I haven't yet lifted another drink. And that's true. But I've taken many wrong turnings. But one of the turnings I haven't taken has been to miss meetings. That hasn't happened yet. Wherever I've lived, I've kept going to meetings. There hasn't been a time yet when I thought, oh, no, I can't be bothered tonight. I'll give it a miss. That hasn't happened. I've kept going and very, very gradually my recovery has been taking place. That's still in the present tense. I'm still recovering. I'm still as much of an alcoholic as when I crawled into AA. But changes have certainly taken place. Um, 
what has been so important for me has been prayer. And that's why I think it's important that aspect of the big book where it speaks about what we can't do for ourselves, that God could and would if he were sought. Because I prove to myself that by my own efforts, I couldn't stay sober. Could for a wee while, but inevitably, I kept going back to drink. But my higher power has kept me sober. And I've continued to pray. After about 12, 13 years sober, I thought I was sober enough to take a wife. And I landed a particularly fine catch, fully house trained, and a good understanding of alcoholism. And we went back to the islands, back to Skye, where I belong. And been staying there for the last uh, 30 years and I've kept going to meetings. Back in uh, the type of drinking environment and been used to in the past, but no need for me to lift a drink. That urge hasn't taken place yet. The work that I've been involved in has brought me in contact with other alcoholics, with drinking alcoholics. The work initially as a psychiatric nurse, visiting houses, visiting homes, visiting all over the highlands of Scotland. And then uh, I was employed by the church until I retired last year. And it was similar work, visiting all over the highlands of Scotland, going to meetings in different places, but being paid to try and help others. And by trying to help others, um, helping myself all the way along the line. The steps of the AA recovery program are very important to me. But I said at the beginning that my type of recovery wouldn't suit anybody else. Our recovery is an individual recovery. And the man who took me under his wing initially, I said that he couldn't have told you the 12 steps from his big toe, but he practiced them. And that's the important aspect of the 12 steps. Not being able to speak about them, not being able to quote page and paragraph and tell others what page and paragraph to look up and read it and then phone me later on once you've done. No, I would shudder if I ever found myself doing that, lecturing others, telling them how to stay sober. I can't do that. All I can do is share my own experience, what's happened to me in my recovery. And the, the steps are there. I can see that they are taking place in my life, but I haven't sat down and said, I've got to do this one tonight. I've got to do that one tonight. Remember maybe five years into recovery, this word sponsor cropped up. Hadn't come across it before, but this Englishman who had taken me under his wing, I, I phoned him up and said, you know, you've been a great help to me over the years. Would you mind a great deal if I called you my sponsor? 
And I have to say, he swore at me using a very strong sweary word followed by off. So that's the, the, the closest I've come to having a, a named sponsor. But he was. Except when he had problems, he would come and see me and discuss them with me. And I've never forgotten that. Somebody who'd been sober since 1960, discussing problems with me and giving me help by doing that. And that's the way I understand AA works, not by lecturing to others. And I shudder at the thought of ever becoming an AA expert and being able to start telling others what page and paragraph to turn to, and you've got to write this out, and you've got to do this. No, no. It's an individual recovery program. And that's the way I understand it. And those people, there were two people I knew in my recovery who, who had met Bill W. And we were wary of saying this, but they didn't like him very much. But they admired him. They had a great admiration for him. But neither of them could be looked upon as AA experts. They were in AA to try and stay sober. And they would share how they'd managed to stay sober. But not lecturing to others. And one of the most important aspects of the, the Zoom facility for me has been to show me how little I know. And in many ways, I hope it stays like that. I hope I don't, hope that doesn't sound too negative. I hope I never know at all to the extent that I can start lecturing to others. Um, I've been attending meetings via Zoom in North America. I particularly enjoyed meetings in. Nova Scotia and, and South Carolina, but I've also been attending meetings in England and uh, other parts of, of the world. And boy, how much I'm learning and the richness of the fellowship. What a wonderful fellowship this is. The AA literature. Uh, of course, I, I've read the big book, and of course, I, I read the AA literature, and I enjoy the AA literature. Some of it is a bit hard to understand. Some of it's a bit dry. But the parts of the literature that I enjoy most are the personal shares. And uh, tend to shy away from the ones that say, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. It's just the way I've been nurtured in AA. Personal shares at AA meetings warm my heart as well. Um, and prayer, prayer, prayer. How important that is for me. When I think back to that graveyard situation in St. Andrews, sitting there uh, begging for help, pouring my heart out to God. I've had to do that a number of times in recovery. And I've never failed to receive an answer. Sometimes 
very often it's not the answer I wanted. That happened recently when my wife and her daughter, who stays with us, the, the two of them announced that we were going to be leaving Skye. They wanted to go back to the mainland of Scotland. And I initially thought, no, 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 I've never even considered that. I'm here for the rest of my life. But I took it to my higher power. I laid it before him, just as I've done with so many other things. I laid it before him. And the next morning, I'd been given full acceptance. Now, it's my lack of faith that leaves me surprised when things like that happen. But they do happen time after time. Let me tell you an instance of that. Um, while I was living on the mainland of Scotland before we went to Sky initially, uh, I was attending church, in a, a village church in the county of Fife. And there was a man in the church who I had often wondered who he was. He, 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 he looked so well-dressed, some dignitary of some kind or other. And when I'd appeared before the sheriff in court, my last appearance in court, uh, I remember getting quite a severe lecture for him, from him, and he'd put me on probation. I didn't deserve that. I, I deserved time in jail, but he, he put me on probation. And that's when I joined AA. Six months later, when I went to appear before the sheriff, he put me on another six months probation. I didn't deserve that, but that's what happened. And eventually, when I appeared before him, he'd admonished me. And it, He'd noticed I'd joined AA, had been sober a year and a half, and he said some encouraging words. And I'd often thought about that. And I thought I would like to thank that man. I'll need to find out where he lives. Probably lives in a big villa outside Dundee. I'll find out where he lives. Well, you may already have realised that was the man who was sitting in church within easy reach of myself, and I'd often wondered who he was. That was the sheriff that had appeared before him 10 years prior to that. All I had to do was go up and speak to him, to thank him. I introduced myself. I said, I appeared before you 10 years ago, and you did this, and you did that. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. He said, my dear friend, how nice of you to come and speak to me. Don't thank me. Thank God. And you know, I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that then. I need to hear that even more now. Because there are times when I give all my gratitude to AA. I need to realize who it was who led me to AA who it is who keeps me in AA, who it is who uses AA. God could and would if he were sought. I continue to seek him and I continue to get these wonderful answers, which are utterly 
undeserved. Today I'm living in a sober house, in a happy home. Today uh, I feel as though I've no desire to lift a drink. And yet I've still got this hunger for AA. And I thank God for that as well. I'm looking for a home meeting. I think it's important to have a home meeting. But I'm not looking for a meeting where there are AA experts who can spout forth on every aspect of the AA programme and quote page and paragraph. I'm looking for an AA meeting where people are loved into sobriety, where there's a warmth, where there's a mutual respect, where there are no experts, but where we're all together learning one day at a time. Privilege to be with you, friends. I have no more to add other than to express my gratitude. Thank you.